our text is John chapter 16, starting at verse 5. But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he bear, whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, you will see me, because I go to the Father." Then some of his disciples said among themselves, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me, and a little while, again a little while, and you will see me, and because I go to the Father. They said, Therefore, what is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he is saying. Now Jesus knew that they desired to ask him, and he said to them, Are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice." And you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. A woman, when she, comes in, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. And in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. His disciples said to him, See, now you are speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Indeed, the hour is coming. Yes, has now come that you will be scattered each to his own and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the chance to come before you and worship. We know that, this, that in the house of worship that you make your purposes clear. It is when we come to worship you that our hearts are sorted out, our minds are given clarity, our wills are strengthened for the work that you have called us to do. So we pray that you would bless us now in this worship that we would leave transformed and prepared for the week ahead. We pray these things in your son's name, and amen. amen. Uh, with this chapter, we're coming to the end of Jesus' farewell discourse. 
Um, so in chapter 17, the next chapter, we're in 16 now, in chapter 17 is when he's going to pray for his disciples, and then he's going to pray for all subsequent believers. And then in chapter 18, he is arrested. So this is the end of his direct teaching of the disciples that have been with him for three years. So he's had this long ministry with them, and this is his last moment of formally um, instructing them. So it's kind of, a, I think, a really poignant moment. He makes clear to them that he is departing, and the news of his departure has now begun to um, seriously distress his disciples. Look at verse 6. Because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. He can tell that this news has uh, filled their hearts with sorrow and has distressed them. Um, so he lets them know that their sorrow over his departure will be temporary. Look at verses 19 and 20. Now Jesus knew that they desired to ask him, and he said to them, Are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said a little while, and you will not see me again a little while, and you will see me? Most assuredly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice, and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. So he tells them, I know that you're sorrowful right now, but I also know that the way this is going to play out, that sorrow is going to be transformed into this real intense joy. And the reason that it will be temporary is that his departure will, be, will cause the coming of the Holy Spirit. He's going to leave. They're going to lament his departure. But he says something better is coming because when I get to heaven and sit down at the right hand of my Father, the Spirit will be sent and you will be filled with the Spirit. And that's why your, this sorrow will be turned into joy. Um, the Spirit... So his heart departure causes the coming of the Holy Spirit, which will result in a fundamental promotion for believers. Verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. It is, it is to your advantage. It is better for you, even though it hurts, it's better for you that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. The Helper, again, being the Holy Spirit. Now, to this extent, what I've just summarized right now is um, basically what you could have gleaned from probably the last uh, two or three sermons. Um, it, throughout the farewell, farewell discourse, he's been preparing them and, and saying this same thing again and again, which is, I'm going to leave, you're going to be sad, I'll go to heaven and send the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will come, and you'll actually be more blessed by the coming of the Spirit than you are than, with having me here. And he, he said this a, a few times. Um, now, but I, but I, I want to make sure we unpack this a little bit more uh, in this section. The thing is, we know that by the power of the Holy Spirit, many great and amazing miracles have been performed. All right, we see this in Scripture, and we know from church history that that the the coming of the Spirit is often uh, accompanied by. Um, crazy miracles, uh, you, from healing, raising the dead, prophecy, tongues. You have all these different um, exceptional miracles that the Spirit uh, performs. But I think that we're easily distracted by the unusual workings of the Spirit such that we can forget the um, importance and the centrality of the usual workings of the Spirit. We think of the Spirit in terms of the crazy miracles, but we miss this fundamental thing, which is what Jesus really was focusing on. Think of it this way. Uh, think, think of, um, I'm talking about the Spirit, but I'm going to shift for a moment and talk about the Son and talk about Jesus. He's, remember, he tells us in Matthew 9, 5, and 6, he says this to somebody who's questioning him. 
Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk? But that you might know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Okay, so other prophets had healed men, but no prophet, no prophet had the authority to forgive sins on his own, on his own power, on his own authority. Many prophets had healed. Many prophets had even raised the dead. Many prophets had performed all kinds of crazy miracles. But no prophet said, I myself have authority on my own authority to forgive your sins. But Jesus is standing there with that authority. So the miracle of healing, which is visible, is a lesser miracle than that of forgiving sins. To heal somebody, to perform this visible miracle, it's visible, we can all see it, but it's a lesser miracle than that of forgiving sins. But in order that we might see and know the truth of the greater invisible work, all right, Jesus performed the lesser visible miracles. So to know that he has the authority to forgive sins, which we cannot see, it's invisible, okay, but it is the greatest miracle of all, to know that he had that authority, he performed a lesser miracle, which was visible, of healing somebody, of, of taking this paralytic and healing him, saying to him, rise and walk. All right? Rise and walk. See that man stand and walk. And when you see that, you will know that when I also say, your sins are forgiven, I have that authority too. But the thing is, to seek Jesus for the lesser miracles while missing the great miracle of the forgiveness of sins, is to seek the sign rather than what the sign was pointing at, which is basically the whole first half of the Gospel of John, right? It's, it, the first half is the book of signs. He's performing all of these great signs, and he gets this crowd around him because they're drawn to the sign. But he's saying, listen, this, this, this visible miracle is intended to point to this much greater reality. To seek him for this sign and to not get the, re the greater reality is to completely miss the whole thing. And so it is also with the Holy Spirit. The purpose of the sending of the Holy Spirit was to accomplish the internal transformation of the believer, which Jesus is describing in this section. Okay, This section is describing how the Spirit comes and it makes us new. It puts this life inside of us and makes us into a different kind of person. Now, we also see the this, this Spirit blessing people with the ability to perform exceptional miracles, all kinds of crazy things that happen, and we see this clearly throughout Acts when the Spirit comes on. But we need to understand the order of significance that those things are merely to point us to the reality and the power of the internal transformation of, uh, of the, the believer's life. And I, th I, I say all this because I think that we have a tendency to um, when we think of the Holy Spirit, to prioritize these, these exceptional workings to, this, to the extent that we actually completely miss or forget the normal standard working of the Holy Spirit, which, which is itself, when I say normal, it's actually the much greater and much more powerful miracle. And so we're getting all confused if we, if we miss this. Now, in verse 8, Jesus summarizes this work of the Holy Spirit. And when he has come, referring to the Spirit, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. The Spirit, when he comes, will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. 
Now, remember over the last couple of chapters that Jesus has been describing how his going away will bring believers closer to God because the coming of the Holy Spirit will cause God to dwell inside the hearts of believers. Look at um, 14.23. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Okay, We're going to come and actually indwell uh, the believer. This is, this is the transformation that's made possible by the coming of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus tells them here, he says, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. But he doesn't just say, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit to the world, to Israel, to Jerusalem. He says, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit to you. Your, my Spirit is going to come to you, and then this will be the effect. But that means then that the effect is an effect that flows out of us with the Spirit in us. This effect is accomplished by the Spirit indwelling us. All the work that the Holy Spirit will do, he will do not as some disembodied force in the universe, which is, I think, how we often tend to think of the Holy Spirit working, some sort of disembodied force in the universe where, like, whoa, the Spirit did something over there. Or the Spirit, the Spirit moved and caused something to happen, as if the Spirit is this disembodied force. He's not, the Spirit does not work as some disembodied for, force. He does this work um, from within the hearts of believers. The Spirit does what he does from within the hearts of believers. So this list of tasks for the Holy Spirit in verse 8, okay? When the Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Those three things are three things that the Spirit does, not as a disembodied force, but through you, through your heart, by living and indwelling you. The convicting of the world of sin, righteousness, and of judgment, this work will be performed by the power of the Holy Spirit by means of the obedience of God's people. Okay? And let's, let's, um, so it's the Spirit working in us that brings us about. So I'm gonna, I wanna um, look at each of these assignments. Let's break it out just a little bit. So he gives us in verse 8, these are the three things he's gonna do. Then verses 9 through 11, he, he takes the three things that he said in verse 8 and he breaks them apart in verses 9, 10, and 11, and each of them gets their own verse. So we'll look at verse 9. Of sin, because they do not believe in me, the Holy Spirit will come into your heart and work in your life in such a way that God convicts the world of its sin through the testimony that you give. Right, The Spirit working in your heart brings conviction again on uh, the world. We have the assignment of convicting the world of sin because of the world's refusal, uh, re refusing to believe in Jesus Christ because they did not believe. And so we have this job of convicting the world of that sin. So how do we do the work of convicting the world? What does that mean? Is it you know walking around with signs, telling everybody how guilty they are? Well, if, if you look, if you look just a little bit earlier, Jesus explains this. Um, chapter 15, look at verses 26 to 27. He, sa he describes the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will testify of me, and you also will bear witness. The spirit in your heart testifies, and, and as the spirit testifies, you give witness. You say what is true about God, and that becomes God's conviction of the world. The spirit of truth indwells the disciples, and their proclamation of that truth becomes 
a witness. But it's interesting because then, then Jesus says, 16, uh, chapter 16, verse 2, they will put you out of the synagogue. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. So it's kind of funny because I'm saying you're going to be a witness against the world for the world's guilt, which means, if you think about it, you're a witness for the prosecution. Okay, You're a witness for the prosecution. Imagine the courtroom, the trial, the, the, the accused is the world that has rejected Christ, and you're on the witness stand called by the prosecuting attorney to testify against them right? With, with an eternal sentence looming, and you're called as this witness, as a witness for the prosecution. But then Jesus says that you're going to be in this situation where they're grabbing you, and they're going to cast you out of the synagogue, basically excommunicate you from uh, the Old Testament synagogue. They're going to excommunicate you, and not only that, they're actually going to throw you, uh, they're, they're going to uh, murder you, thinking that by murdering you, they're worshiping God. So it's kind of weird to say you're a witness for the prosecution at the moment where you're actually being cast out of the synagogue um, and maybe even executed. It seems like you're, uh, you're the accused rather than the witness for the prosecution. But think of it this way. When the crowd picked up rocks to stone Stephen for his witness, you know, Stephen gives this powerful witness, and it ends with the crowd picking up their rocks and executing him right there as he has completed this powerful witness. When, when the crowd picked up rocks to stone Stephen for his witness, who was on trial? Who was really on trial? If we look from, with earthly eyes, we see it one way. But if you step back and, and look with eyes of faith, with heavenly eyes, suddenly you realize that something very, very different is happening at that moment. Who is actually on trial? Stephen or the Jews with the rocks in their hands? You see, the actual courtroom is the courtroom in heaven before God. And we need to have heavenly eyes that can see that that's what's playing out around us all the time. And it may have looked like Stephen was on trial, but he was actually a witness for the prosecution. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 23 says that the blood of every martyr Okay, and he starts all the way back uh, with Abel, <laughs> and, he, and he goes all the way forward, uh, um, all the way through, throughout church history. And he says every martyr that has been killed by Israel, is, their blood is a testimony, is stored up as this testimony against Israel for her rejection of the Messiah. Okay? And each of these guys is dying at the hands of this crowd, of this mob. And he says, actually, Jesus says, actually, they were all witnesses for the prosecution. All right? If you see with heavenly eyes, you understand that they are witnesses for the prosecution. Jesus says that we are to be witnesses convicting the world of sin. The courtroom is the courtroom of heaven, and the world is on trial. And the Spirit working in our lives is causing us to speak and to live the truth. And it's bringing us as witnesses for the prosecution. It doesn't matter what it feels like in the world around you. We know what the courtroom in heaven is actually doing. And so we know our faithfulness and our clear testimony is truly important. And that's what obedience will look like. Now, two things here. First of all, notice that... The courtroom is in heaven, okay? And we need to make sure that we get that really clear, that the courtroom is in heaven. This means that you don't have to be in a position of fleshly dominance to be the witness that God has called you to be. 
Okay? You don't have to be in this situation where it feels like you are being escorted forward in a position of great power to deliver some great prosecution. It can be a moment when you are the victim, when you are the defendant, when you are the one who's about to be executed. And even at that moment, you're a witness for the prosecution. And we need to have eyes to see that the courtroom is in heaven, and that's the way God is going to work this. You're, you're, you are a witness for the prosecution, whether it seems like righteousness is advancing or it seems like righteousness is being conquered. Okay? You are God's witnesses, whether you are in the middle of winning the culture war in America or if you are being burned, uh, executed by the Taliban for your faith. Okay? In either situation, you are being a witness for Christ. Uh, in Hebrews, remember we're told uh, in Hebrews 11, we have this description of that great cloud of witnesses, a great cloud of witnesses. And it's really interesting how some of them are described as having incredible success and glory in their lives. And some of them are described as great martyrs who lost it all, who were robbed of everything. And he says, they're all just witnesses. They're all witnesses testifying uh, on behalf of Christ. Now, of course, our, vic our goal is victory here. I'm not trying to tell us that we have like this sort of disembodied hope and we don't actually believe anything will ever happen here and our hope is only for another world. That's not true. Our goal is victory here. Jesus commanded us that we pray and we end every Sunday, every sermon praying this, saying we want God's kingdom to come and God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, in that heavenly courtroom where every justice is righteous and perfect. We want that kind of justice here on earth. So we're not giving up on seeing that happen here on earth. Victory is our aim. But that victory will become by a lot of moments that look like defeat to everyone else. The victory that comes is a, is a victory that God brings in his uh, great goodness and his mysterious providences. And it's a victory that for us, it's very hard to figure out how we conjure that up. We trust in faith that God will bring that victory here on earth. So remember, first of all, that the courtroom is in heaven. And the second thing is that the witness the witness that we're to bring, okay, I'm saying that you're supposed to be a witness for the prosecution, okay, the witness that we're supposed to bring is the testimony that we bring is the testimony of the spirit-filled life, okay? We're not, we're not um, called to be the people with the sort of bony finger of accusation, uh, you know, that, that's not, we're not necessarily glorifying God when we're running around um, pointing that finger of accusation. Of course, we want to give a witness to God's truth. But the real power of the witness that Jesus is describing here is the Spirit working in you. The Spirit and the life of the Spirit working its way out in your life. The work of the Spirit in your life is the prosecution's witness. Okay, remember, what does it look like when the Spirit fills you? What is the work of the Spirit that other people will see? Paul tells us, Galatians 5, love joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit. When the Spirit is in you, it makes you bear the fruit of the Spirit. And that fruit is the witness. It's the testimony uh, for the prosecution. It's the testimony of the truth of the gospel. It's the fruit of the Spirit. This means then that the way that you behave with your kids in the grocery store is your witness. 
The, the way that you sit there and deal with that very difficult moment where somebody's shrieking and you've lost all patience and everything is going wrong and nothing is going right. And right then, how you handle that, that is your witness. Okay, how, how do you let the Spirit work its way out in that moment? That is your witness to this world. The way that you endure a coworker's unprovoked bitterness at you is your witness. Somebody, somebody hates you. Somebody is constantly carping and criticizing because for some weird reason, they have got it in their head that you are somehow their enemy and that they need to somehow cut you down in order for them to make advances in this world. And you cannot figure it out because you have not wronged them. And so how do you handle that? Okay, that little, that little perplexing moment, that is your witness. Do you know how to turn the cheek? Do you know how to return good for evil? That is your witness when you can patiently and in a godly, spirit-filled way endure that kind of difficulty. The way that you choose to rejoice in the face of physical pain, a physical pain that just is constantly there, a medical issue that is constantly riding you, or uh, perhaps a financial uh, hardship where you're really, really under it and you cannot figure out how to make this work. And you have a bunch of people depending on you and cutting you zero slack and you cannot figure out how do you make this happen. How you handle that moment, how you handle that moment is the Spirit's witness in this world. When the Spirit fills people, they're able to handle things that make other people crumple, that make other people lash out in anger. When you're filled with the Spirit, you lash out with joy, with love, with kindness, with patience, with long-suffering, and it goes on and on. That's what you are filled with. So that's the, the, the witness that we have is our being Spirit-filled and living out the fruit of the Spirit. Now, Jesus says that we don't just convict the world of sin. Okay, When, when, we, when we are filled with the Spirit and we behave um, in a godly way, in difficult circumstances that convicts the world of sin. But that's not the only thing that we do. He says that we also, verse 10, we convict the world of righteousness. We show the world what righteousness looks like. And then he says, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. That's really interesting. He, sa he says the Spirit needs to come and fill you so that the world will know what righteousness looks like. And he says, that has to happen because I'm going away. Up until this point, if you had encountered Jesus, you were looking at perfect righteousness in the flesh. You were looking at perfect obedience. And he says, I'm going away. I'm the, I'm the fulfillment of the law. I'm the model of righteousness that the world can see, but I'm going back to heaven. So, so who's, who's going to fill this role? He says, I'm going to send my spirit and fill you with the Holy Spirit and you will take the job that I had of showing the world what righteousness looks like. We are not just, we are a witness not just against sin, we are a witness uh, testifying what righteousness looks like. And Jesus says that this is necessary because he is going away. The living model that Jesus was to his disciples of what righteousness looked like, we are now filled with the Spirit and commanded to be that model to the world. Okay, now if you think of it, if you hear it that way, you have to think to yourself, if you're honest, man, what a downgrade, right? I mean, you, the world had a chance to look at Jesus and see what righteousness would look like. He's removed, and now it's us, a bunch of total sinners, right? Um, how can we 
be that to the world. You had the example of God himself in the flesh, Jesus Christ, or you have the example of us little sinners. But God's people, filled with his Holy Spirit, is God's preferred way to advance his gospel. And this is really striking. That, that God's people, filled with his Holy Spirit, is his preferred way to do this. That it's actually a progression. It's an advance from just having Jesus here. Look at verses uh, 12 to 14. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. The disciples standing there with Jesus could not, could not receive the teaching that he needed to give. He needed to go away so that they could be filled with the Holy Spirit, so that they could be equipped to actually take on the teaching that he was giving. The, the church with the Spirit is a more powerful and mature witness than the disciples with Jesus. Okay? And that's just really striking, but it's pretty clear that that's what Jesus is saying. The church with the Holy Spirit is a more powerful witness and testimony to this world, a more mature, more understanding, more educated, and more faithful witness than it was to have just the disciples with Jesus. I think of, um, it, it's weird because... Um, Whenever you get into um, theology or the study of scripture, the study of theology, church history, we have a tendency to always want to try to get back to this moment with Jesus and that first little moment with the disciples. We, we have a, a weird sort of presupposition that, that this is where the purity, all the purity was here. Everything was perfect at this moment. And everything that moved on from this time was somehow a downgrade. And so in, in, uh, in theology, there's often this presupposition that if we could get back to maybe what the church believed in the year 120, then we would be getting back to a more authentic and more, um, and more accurate summary of the, the true theological position of the disciples. We have a tendency to want to look back, and we're always looking at different ways of looking back. But I don't know that that's actually very biblical when, when we look at what Jesus is saying. It's funny. Um, okay, so uh, rabbit trail for a moment. I, I, can remember, um, I can remember as a little kid sitting and, and talking with uh, my great-grandfather. And he, my great-grandfather had fought in World War I, and I can remember sitting there with him. He had a wooden leg. You could knock on his leg. He always had a pipe. So that smell of pipe tobacco just always takes me to that moment. Um, and he had a really cool 45 that he had carried in World War I. And, and it's amazing. Like, I really wish I could just go back and ask him questions about, uh, about that time. He rode with uh, General Pershing, Black Jack Pershing, because um, he was a horse guy. And he had all of these stories. I would love to go back and hear that. And there's a sense of, like, if I could just go back. And it's crazy that I can have that connection, that my great-grandfather could take me back to that moment. I remember reading early on Irenaeus. Um, Irenaeus lived in the second century, um, and he was a church father in the second century who writes a whole bunch. And Irenaeus could remember listening to the guy who mentored him, uh, an, an earlier church father named Polycarp. So Polycarp was Irenaeus's mentor. Irenaeus was his disciple. And, and Irenaeus describes Polycarp 
telling him the stories of sitting there with the Apostle John. And, and what an amazing moment. And he, he can remember John talking about what it was like to sit with Jesus and, and hear the teachings of Jesus. And, and when you hear that, like that's, that blows my grandfather's story out of the water, right? To, to be somebody who could sit there and have your spiritual great-grandfather be Jesus Christ himself. Your grandfather is John and your dad is Polycarp. Okay, that's amazing. And what, what a window into the teachings of Jesus. But Jesus' point here is that the life of the Spirit in us is a more powerful connection to the risen Christ than what the disciples themselves had. Okay, That what, what you have with the Spirit indwelling you is more powerful, more maturing, and is, is a more fruitful direction for you to go than for you to go back and try to meet John and get John's stories about Jesus. Now he says he says that the spirit will lead us there's 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 two things that 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 the or excuse me there's two ways that the spirit in you is going to convict the world of righteousness. First of all he says that the spirit verse 13 when he, when he the spirit of truth has come he will guide you into all truth. He will guide you. Um, now we've speak it's, it's if you think about it we've seen the spirit as a guide before, right? Uh, remember that during the Exodus uh, the Holy Spirit came as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to go before the Israelites to lead them into the promised land. They're leaving Egypt, they don't know where to go. There's this ball of fire and they just follow the ball of fire. That's what the spirit does. He guides them, he leads them as they travel. But here Jesus says that the spirit who used to go before in this in this ball of fire, this pillar of smoke, that spirit is now going to actually indwell you. And that spirit is going to continue to guide. The spirit guides you, but the spirit guides you not from out in front, but from within, from inside. Okay, The, the spirit is going to indwell you. The spirit who used to go before will now be inside of you, leading you not to the promised land, but into all truth. The spirit is leading you into all truth. You and your Bible and the Holy Spirit and the body of believers around you, that is better equipped, all right, better equipped for faithfulness than the Israelites in the wilderness with the ball of fire before them. It's funny because you, you think of the Israelites in that moment of, of seeing all the tremendous miracles of the Holy Spirit and having the God leading you right there with this very visible sign. And yet you think of all the messes that they got into nonstop. The Spirit indwelling you and filling you is a better guide, leading you into all truth. He's taking you forward into all truth in your study of His Word and your understanding of His promises. To think that you, like, if I could go back, go back, go back, go back, all the way to John, and maybe even to be able to sit there with Jesus to hear what He said, I think the first thing He'd say is, what are you doing here? Go forward. Go forward. I gave you the Spirit to take you forward. You want to go forward. And then the, the, next, the next way that the Spirit leads us, the Spirit is leading us into all truth. But then secondly, look at verses 25, or excuse me, 23 and 24. In that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. We have seen, um, so, so the indwelling of the Spirit 
has created a more direct access for you to speak directly to the Father. An access more direct than, than if you had Jesus himself here with you offering to speak on your behalf. Okay, If you had Jesus himself here saying, hey, I will go ask the Father something for you. Jesus is saying, what you have with the Holy Spirit is better than even that. A direct access to the Father in your prayer life. It's as if Jesus has given you the keys to the house, the credit card, the PIN, the password to the Wi-Fi. All of that has been given to you, and, and you're told, enjoy this. Take advantage of this. Spend, enjoy, drive the car, spend the credit card, enjoy the house, because you now have my name on you, and you get to have all of this by right. We pray in Jesus' name, amen, to our Father, to our Father. He's the Son, and he said, you get to step inside of me, and you get to call him your Father, okay? Because of what I have been given to you, which is given to you by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's, you know, you think about how um, when you go to, a, you go to the, a football game, and you have that moment uh, where we will... Um, will uh, sing the national anthem. And there's this moment where you think about, okay, there, and I think right now it's, it's particularly powerful because you, as you see a country forgetting the sacrifices that were, that were made in order to give us the freedoms that we have, it becomes a little bit more poignant and you think about what it costs for us to live the way we do. And you see that flag and you have this moment of like just real gratitude for the people that, that suffered in order to give us the freedom that we have and that we are so casually throwing away. But there's something even more profound when we think about that in our prayer life. Right? The fact that you can just, wherever you are, just stop and start praying and then just say, my Father, okay, Father, here, I have these requests that I need to bring to you. In Jesus' name, amen. We need to make sure we understand the great significance of that privilege that we have in being able to come to the Father in prayer like that. And then lastly, Jesus says that the Spirit uh, in us convicts the world of judgment, verse 11, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judge. Specifically, he says that the coming of the Spirit declares that the ruler of this world has been judged. He, he made this point already, if you go back a little bit to 12, 31. Now, the now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. Okay, now the judgment of the world. As when Jesus is lifted up, we know that the, the ruler of this world, Satan, is falling, that he's dropping and losing all of his power and authority. And again, we have to make sure that we see with heavenly eyes because it doesn't always look like this to our fleshly eyes. But in the courtroom of heaven, we know that everything has been transformed by the work of Christ on the cross. And the coming of the Holy Spirit launched the dethroning of Satan in this world. It's a moment of great spiritual victory, which feels like a moment of great spiritual defeat, right? If you had been in Israel at this moment, it would have felt like great defeat. We know that the next hundred years, well, a couple hundred years of the church um, would be from this, this moment on a time of great persecution and suffering for the Christians. And we also know that in that moment of great persecution and suffering, that it was actually the gospel advancing in the most incredible way, going from this little um, 
you know, backwaters uh, capital of Jerusalem throughout Israel, then throughout the Roman Empire, and then beyond in just a couple hundred years, and, and driven primarily by the persecution that they were feeling. He was advancing his church. So it's actually a time of great triumph for the church. Now, Jesus ends his teaching here with this encouragement, verse 33. These things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Right? He has triumphed over the world. And even though we're sitting there having tribulation in the world, even though you might be persecuted by the world, we know that in the heavenly court, you're actually speaking as a witness for the prosecution, that God's gospel is advancing and that he is triumphing with his spirit in you. We know that, the, that despite the great persecution of the church, the result was the gospel would spread throughout the whole world. Um, this life of the Spirit in you, then, is what Jesus was talking about when he said that you needed to abide in the vine. Abide in the vine. This, when you're in the vine, the Spirit flows into you and gives you this life. <clears throat> the Spirit is the power flowing into you that gives you life, and the life is the simple life of the Spirit. It's you being led by the Spirit, like the Israelites in the wilderness, in the Word of God. It is you speaking directly to the Father, privileged to come to Him in the name of Jesus Christ. And the result of this abiding is you bearing the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And this fruit serves as a witness to the world of the world's sin, of Jesus' righteousness, and of the victory of the gospel. So these are huge things, if you think about it. The exodus, the fall of Satan, the judgment of Jesus Christ. These are enormous things that, are, that we're describing here. But the crazy thing is that these huge things play out in the little things in your life. Uh, that your quiet time, how you treat your kids, how you treat your spouse, how you treat your coworkers. And it's funny, you, you need to, the eye of faith understands how these two things are going on at the same time. And I think it's important to do that because we all feel the need for real, great, and tremendous significance, right? I think as you can see this in the way American movies constantly play out, where like every show will start with some small little problem, and usually by the end, every movie, somehow like the freedom of the entire world, or the solar system, or something, like it's something um, magnificent that's always at stake, and that that's what our hero is fighting for you know, um, trying to prevent a nuclear war that will destroy uh, the entire earth. It always has to escalate to that because we need our, our, the, the plights that we're in to have great and tremendous uh, significance. But the thing is, is that we know that we're all quite insignificant. I think, that, I think of this every time when I'm just, you're flying and you look down and you see all the little people in some crowded city, like just little ants on the sidewalk. And every little car on the freeway, and you know that in that car is somebody who believes he is of great significance. The world, the future of the world is depending on whatever mundane task that he is off to do that day. But we know that we're actually quite insignificant if judged by earthly standards. But the thing is, is that God puts, this is the great wonder of the gospel, is the way he puts great significance in very insignificant moments. Right, he he has he has the 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 save the salvation of mankind play out in this backwater mid eastern country with these people that most everybody else at the time had forgotten, 
Um, he, he always puts these great and tremendous significant things inside the lives of the insignificant people. And everything we're doing is loaded with that kind of significance. Your testimony on a heavenly level is playing out when you're at the grocery store, when you're at home doing the dishes, when you're at the office trying to figure out the balance sheet. Right? Great significance is happening at that moment because the testimony of the gospel is being lived out by your obedience at that moment. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit, and we ask that we might be filled more and more with his power. May we overflow with these fruits in such a way that we would become a powerful witness of what your Son has done for us. We especially thank you that we can approach your throne in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, would you draw us into prayer constantly in the week ahead that we might bring all that we desire to you to seek your will in all things. And we pray now as your Son taught us to pray, saying, in Matthew 5, Jesus says, Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, then come and present your offering. When the saints gather for worship, it is mighty for tearing down strongholds. When we lift up the name of Jesus together in prayer and song, in word and sacrament, we are wielding the mightiest weapon in our arsenal against the world, the flesh, and the devil. So it should come as no surprise that the devil would like nothing more than to gum us up here. He would like nothing more than to dull our blade, make this worship less potent. And one of the central ways he seeks to do that is by creating divisions or grievances or broken fellowship in our midst. And so we must remember that fundamentally, what we are offering in worship is ourselves, all that we are. And therefore, that offering is either pure and without blemish because it is covered in the blood of Jesus, or else it is covered in the blemishes of unconfessed sin and broken fellowship. So how do you offer a pure sacrifice of praise, one that is truly mighty? By being washed in the blood of Jesus. And how do you wash your sins away? By confessing to God and anyone you've sinned against. If you're on your way to church and you remember an argument with a coworker, call them quickly, send a text, ask for forgiveness. If you're on your way to church and you snap at your husband or wife or kids, ask their forgiveness quickly and confess it to God. And if you've gotten all the way to this point in the service and you've remembered something, Resolve before God now to put it right at the first possible moment. Maybe you can even do it during the hymn. Christ died to make you clean. Christ died so that we might be in fellowship with God and one another. Christ died so that our worship might be potent. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. In the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and gave thanks. So let's give thanks together. Our God and Father, we praise you that you sent your son Jesus in order to break the back of all our sin. Father, we thank you that even as we celebrate this meal, you are still in the process of doing that, doing that here in our midst and doing that out in the world. So receive us now under the blood of Jesus and make our worship potent. Drive back the darkness in our world. And so we thank you for the promise that you will, in Jesus' name, and amen.
two things to charge you with as you go this morning out from the midst of God's people under his blessing. First, we live in a panicked moment, perhaps uh, more panicked than many um, for a long time, uh, people scared and terrified. And in many respects, though, what God is doing is giving us an opportunity. You have the spirit of God that gives you peace. And so in some ways, God has lowered the bar significantly to testify of Jesus. You have peace. How do you have peace? You don't know, but you have the spirit of God. Why are you so joyful in the midst of all this chaos, losing freedom, sickness, whatever? I have Jesus. I have the spirit of Jesus in my heart. The, the bar has been lowered in a glorious way so that you might testify of the truth of the peace of Christ. And of course, even then, you, you think to yourself, yeah, the bar is so low and I'm still having trouble. <laughs> I have the spirit of God and I still don't have as much peace as I should. I'm not as joyful as I should. And this leads to the second thing, which is ask for it. Ask for it. Ask for the little things. Ask for peace while you're doing the dishes. Ask for joy while doing that homework assignment in Jesus' name. That's a, those are prayers that God loves to answer. He loves to answer those little prayers. We want to ask the big ones, you know, God save Joe Biden, which is a good prayer to pray. But start with the little things, right? God, help me be patient on the way to work. God loves to answer those prayers. He does. And, and if, you're, if you think about it for a moment, you realize he answers those prayers regularly. You stop and you're like, Lord, please give me peace. In Jesus' name. And then look back. An hour later, and you think, that went really well. I wonder how that happened. <laughs> God loves to answer that prayer offered in Jesus' name. So go now under the blessing of your God, the God who has given you the Spirit. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself, God, even our Father, who hath loved us and has given us everlasting consolation and good hope through his grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work, and amen.